0: Turin and the British in the Age of the Grand Tour. Hello, I'm Linda.
1: And I'm Michael.
0: And today we want to talk a little more about the destination of the Grand Tour of the city of Torino, the capital of Piedmont, which was the first major stop for many as they arrived in Italy. The Grand Tour extended from the traditional route which involved arriving at Paris, where a transport would be picked up or got to cross the Alps from Lyon, a chair being bo- borne by the chair bearers or the chairmen, as they were often known, uh, over the mountain pass in the French Alps to the Italian Savoie called Mount Ciennes, which is actually quite an ascent. It's quite high, 2,083 meters. Once the ascent had been made, the journey continued through. You reached the valley floor quite quickly, and the Roman town of Segusio, which itself has a Roman amphitheatre, and along this long alpine valley, which actually Napoleon constructed a straight campaign road in 1803, which is about 25 kilometres long. And this was to gain access from the Arc Valley in the Savoie to the capital of Piedmont and Turin. So Piedmont itself is in the northwest of Italy. It's a little bit unknown or or off the the main track these days. Other towns we know are Vercelli, Novara, and of course, Genoa is the region's port.
1: The river Po is at the core and it winds its way through northern Italy, filling Lake Maggiore in the foothills of the Alps, meandering then on its way to the lagoon of Venice. So, Turin, Torino, as the Italians refer to it, Began as Augusta Taurinorum, so therefore it was a Roman settlement or colonia built under the first emperor Augustus, with the surviving grid plan, and is adorned by a defensive a defensive Palatine Gate. So it was an imperial city so it's two thousand years old as an imperial city it must have been a sight to behold in the 18th century because that's the time of its huge expansion and it was seen as a crown jewel in the north of italy rivaling probably milan i imagine venice probably also florence which in a sense had kind of come down from its importance in the past and it was filled with magnificent Baroque churches and elegant Rococo palazzi forming Grand Piazza at the centre of the city. The diplomatic heart of the north of Italy, the court of Savoy, was a breathtaking stop on the Grand Tour, and the Duke of Savoy, Victor Amadeus II, claimed royal status in 1717. So, in a sense, that really put it on the map the british then took that seriously and it became one of the most assiduous advocates and a notable stream of british diplomats grand tours and visitors attended the subaudient court during the 18th and 19th centuries and of course later on once Italy becomes united we're going to find it's the piedmontese who take over and the first kings of italy are from this district
0: Yes, so indeed a gateway to Italy. And Torino has for a very long time been known as this cultural cosmopolitan city. It was the envy of Europe. It was usually taken in with an accompanying courtly ball over the seasons. And for example, very nice to think of Charles Wyndham, who's the second Earl Edgermont. He describes a ball given by the French ambassador on the occasion of the birth of the French Dauphin in November 1727. And Edgerman or Charles, uh, so Wyndham as he's known, uh, he danced all night long with the very evocatively named Principes And I think he spent as much as long the next day trying to shake her off, unfortunately for her. But in any case, one of the purposes of the Grand Tour was to amass a collection of antiquities and maybe souvenirs, Some pa- have paintings commissioned, engravings and cal- collect various books and other Cabinets of gems and coins. And in this case, Edremont, he would in fact ship back over 200 paintings from this first Grand Tour, and um, they arrived in Petworth, which is his family home, in 1730. A little closer to home, and something that's quite interesting for us, in 1718, the Viscount Robert Molesworth. And that's of Dublin's Molesworth Street, maybe familiar to some of us. He brought Alessandro Galilei, who's later known as the architect of San Giovanni in Laterano in Rome, the great loggia. He goes via Torino, where he is presented to the uh, Sabadian court, to Ireland, where he will prepare drawings for the very grand, our Palladian house, Castletown. And this was for speaker William Connolly. Um, Galilei will design and uh, he makes project drawings for Castletown, which it reminds us maybe in many respects of some of these Torini Turin, palazzi. The Castletown itself is later is completed by Edward Lovett Pierce and Galilei returns to Italy. Um, but in, before he arrives in Rome, he also builds the great cathedral at Cortona. Um, some of you may know this. And then, of course, he is uh, put into service for building that great loggia uh, for the Lateran.
1: Well, curiously, when you're talking about the Latin and Rome in general, by the time the Grand Tourist got down to Rome, they probably would be a little bit disappointed because they'd been in Turin. And then to compare Rome, which was falling to bits even still at this stage, it must have been such a contrast. Because Turin's grandest piazza is a perfectly proportioned square built by the architect Carlo di Castelmonte, who was in the middle of the 17th century. And he designed it with a twin pair of Baroque churches, the Chiesa di San Carlo and the Chiesa di Santa Cristina. And at the centre of the square is a fine equestrian statue to the Duke Emanuele Filiberto of the House of Savoy. So you can imagine a young... British or Irish or German or French uh, aristocrat or wealthy person coming here will be highly, highly impressed.
0: Yes um, and probably the best known of these palazzi uh, in the centre was Palazzo Carignano. Uh, This was the former residence of the Savoie. This this is where you wanted to be invited to for the great ball of the season and for our purposes this was it was designed by the architect Guarino Guarini and he's uh, active in the 1660s and he in fact designed six great baroque churches in Turin for uh, the House of Savoie. He He was a a peer of the great Borromini, the architect of Rome, one of the great architects in Rome, who we will encounter a little later in this series. Guarini, um, staying with Turin, he was a mathematician as well as the architect. And not least, uh, he worked on the sa- the secular palace of the uh, Carignano, which has a magnificent curved staircase, an undulating facade. There's a double-domed salon, but it was heralded by the visitor as the finest urban palace in late 17th century Italy. Guarini also is known for these extraordinary dome solutions uh, of San Lorenzo from 1668 and the San Sidone, the the Church of the Holy Shroud. Um, In both cases, they're centralized and there's this extraordinary fretwork of interwoven masonry arcades. But to stay a little bit or to think a little bit more of the Chapel of St. John of the Holy Shroud, this was built during the reign of Charles Emanuele II. He is Duke of Savoy. It was to house the holy shroud, which was believed to be a relic of Jesus Christ from Nazareth. But just interestingly, uh, um, it was referred to by during by the visitors as the holy handkerchief. Do you would you like to tell us a little more about the shroud, Michael?
1: Well, the earliest reference to the shroud comes from the uh, middle of the 14th century, when one of the bishops of Turin actually denounces. Um, the, the, the shroud as a, f- a fake. But I think it came into the popular imagination uh, in the late 19th century when an Italian lawyer who was an amateur photographer and just think photography had only been invented a few years earlier, uh, Segundo Pia, took a photograph. And when he looked at the negative, instead of seeing the sepia color of this winding sheet, which was about 14 feet by three across, He took a black and white image and as he looked at it, he could see much more clearly than the faded sepia tint. He could see the face of a man and make out the body. And that was the first time that it really came into, uh, I suppose you could say, public imagination. And we mentioned in our last talk about the young English aristocrats who were following in the line of the pilgrims, so earlier there were Christian pilgrims, but by the middle of the sixteenth century you'd had the Protestant Reformation, so these things were seen much more as superstitions. But what we do know uh, very curiously about the shroud of Turin is that it appears a very old piece of cloth; it does seem to have the images of a man who is flogged and possibly crucified. But whether that goes back to the time of Christ is anybody's guess. And in 1988, a number of radiocarbon tests were carried out and they indicated that it was a medieval uh, garment and therefore we could say a a fake. But there's still a lot of expertise, scientists involved who are trying to work out some of the mysteries of the shroud to this day. And
0: as I understand it, Really, rather than thinking of it as a fake, it's probably something more that was a copy at the time during the medieval period. And it's very much as if to keep these ideas and to keep these uh, very precious relics alive. And it's something that we know from, you know, the classical ancient, uh, um, you know, Capturing or copying medieval during the medieval period, copying classical texts or rewriting the scriptures with this in mind. So it was a method, a way of preserving, you know, what had come through from a very from from the earlier period.
1: And of course, it comes very much from that period, as I say, of the. The the pilgrim who wanted to go to see a special place, a holy site and every church, abbey, cathedral, convent, worth their salt, they had their collection of relics and uh, for example uh, Maximilian the Emperor who was around at the time of Luther he did an enormous big chapel full of relics that he'd collected and spent a lot of money on and then he decided they were all fakes after he'd been convinced by Luther so this is kind of all in the mix of this period.
0: Well wonderful, the whole question of fakes and forgeries is something we're going to and copies we're going to carry on that theme when we arrive in Rome and along the way in this series uh, it will become something of the preserve of artists like Piranesi to add to or augment or improve some of the ancient sculptures by adding an arm or a leg or a nose or some some kind of detail but as well as these famous and holy relics the grand tourist would pass by and, uh, you know, the, another highlight in the collection of, the, of Savoie was the Royal Museum of Antiquities and of Egyptian antiqu, antiquarian, or I think it was called the Antiquarian Collection, in the Academy of Sciences. And um, these were on exhibition. And we should note, yeah, this is the time when museums and displays were becoming more prominent with, with, uh, at the catalyst of all these visitors arriving. So the Drovetti collection was purchased by Carlo Felice, the Duke of Savoy, in 1821, in fact, and it was the most rivaled, it was actually unrivaled in Europe, this collection of Egyptian antiquities. It had been collected by Bernardino Drovetti, who was, he was the diplomat, but he was the French consul to Egypt, during 1803 to 1815, and he was known as Napoleon's proconsul to Egypt. He sold his collection to Carlo Felice. It is, in fact, the cornerstone of this Museo Egizio, and uh, most notable was the Royal Canon, which is a papyrus scroll which contains the names of the pharaohs and that they're datable to the reign of Ramses II. So that gives us a kind of a terminus postquem, antiquem for a chronology for much of the Egyptian culture. So it's absolutely a cornerstone of that collection.
1: Well, it's really worth going to see that uh, museum, the uh, Museo Egizio, because as you say, it has this marvellous collection. First of all, it was gathered together at the time of the Napoleonic invasions or expeditions to Egypt. So that's where a lot of this stuff came back into Europe with the troops. They were told when you go into a country or a town, just take whatever is movable and bring it to the Louvre and we'll put it somewhere there. But if you go to Turin, and Turin actually is a a marvellous city because it's overlooked by most people. The majority of people going to Italy will want to go to Rome, Venice, Naples, Genoa, Florence, of course, Siena. They're the kind of the big six. But Turin is really not to be sneezed at. It's a magnificent place, the home of Fiat, of the Agnelli, of uh, so much industry. It's a very wealthy place, freezing cold in the winter and boiling hot in the summer. But nevertheless, it's, it's a wonderful treasure. But from here, unfortunately, we've got to leave and wave goodbye as our grand tours would do, because they had to continue on. They either went left east to Venice. They wanted to go to Carnival if it was if they were in time, or else they went south and they veered over a little bit uh, to, the, to the west, a little bit to the east to the to the uh, right i should say and they carried on then down bringing them towards their goal the city of rome
0: like that yes we need to skip along um, now and think of venice and what comes to mind and beyond a carnival and masks i think we need to bring ourselves and journey down the grand canal so i'm going to say ciao a uh, arrivederci and until the next time
1: A presto.